Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Now let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5. As Bill said, we're, we're finishing this morning, and it's a great finish. One of the basic instinctive needs that uh, we as human beings have is to be secure. I think you all know that we love security. We want to feel safe in our surroundings. We want to know that the things that are around us are sure. And yet the conflicting reality that we know is true is that we live in a world that is not certain but very uncertain. We live in life that by its very nature has few guarantees. Few things are safe and quite frankly in the world that we live in, in 1994, there are few things that feel safe anymore. For instance, we feel uncertain about safety in its own right with the random violence that we, we see all around us. It seems like no one is immune to crime, to catastrophe. Consider that just a few years ago, the only people who were really interested in guns were hunters. But today it seems like everyone from the housewife to the teenager has an interest in packing some heat, so to speak, with an idea or an attitude that says, if they're going to get me, I'm not going to go down without a fight. That's almost an Old West kind of attitude in 1994. Consider also that we feel uncertain about our health especially in light of all that we see going on in Washington about health care reform. And then what about the recent revelations that we have about flesh-eating bacteria? And then the fact that now they're warning us that there is strains of viruses that in the very near future will be immune to all kinds of drugs and wonder drugs. We feel uncertain about people that we used to admire we thought we knew O.J. Simpson, but we didn't. We feel uncertain even about the foods we eat. You know, I used to like chicken. And I started eating chicken because people told me that if I ate red meat, it would kill me. And uh, not wanting to die, then I switched to chicken. But the other day, I was at a restaurant with a friend ordering chicken. And as I went to uh, order this chicken salad, he said, do you know how they prepare that stuff? <laughs> I said, well, no. And he said, well, didn't you see 2020 the other night? Didn't you see how they process all those chickens? And then he went into a lengthy, explicit explanation of how they process chicken. And then he said, haven't you heard about the word salmonella? And I said, well, no. He said, well, didn't you see eye to eye with Connie Chung? <laughs> and I said, well, no, I didn't. I said, besides, I thought this chicken was fresh. He said, fresh? Didn't you see primetime the other night? <laughs> it's not fresh. The FDA says it's fresh. But it's not fresh. It's frozen. And they say that it's fresh. So I went to order the fruit plate. <laughs> and about the time I ordered fruit, my friend said, didn't you see the news the other night? Didn't you see current affair? Do you know what's on that stuff? And I said, well, no. He said, pesticides killer pesticides. That stuff comes from Latin American countries where there's no restrictions. And that stuff gets in the United States. And if you eat that stuff, there are pesticides on that fruit that could burn a hole in your intestines. So I ordered a steak. <laughs> yeah, I did. Growth hormones and all. I ordered a steak. Sometimes I'm not even sure about where I live. I wonder if there's radon gas under my house. I wonder if there's lead in my water. And when I go into my attic, I wonder, is all this asbestos? See, we live in a world of uncertainty. And think how much money you spend on things that haven't even happened to you yet. You have car insurance and health insurance. You have homeowner's insurance and disability insurance and life insurance. And after all that, as I moved to Arkansas, I found that there was a New Madrid fault just east of here and that an 8.6 earthquake could do moderate damage to my home. 
So I went out and bought earthquake insurance. We live in a world of uncertainties. Some of them are humorous. Some of them are quite sobering. It's good to know that you can go somewhere, someplace, and find that there are some things that are sure. There are some forever constants, some absolute guarantees in life that will exist even with the changes in our culture and the surprises that sometimes wash over our life. We can look into the scriptures and see some of those absolute guarantees. For instance, in Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8, it says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it abides forever. Proverbs 11:18 says, The wicked earn a deceptive wage, but he who sows righteousness will get a sure reward. Job 34, 12 says, Surely God will not act wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Isn't that good to know? Romans 2, 2 says, We are sure that the judgment of God will be according to the truth. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal on it. The Lord knows them who are His. Those are some things that are sure according to the Scripture. And as we end this little letter of John this morning, he ends it not like the Apostle Paul where Paul would give all these greetings to people to whom he was writing the letter to, but John just continues on with his doctrinal discussion about certainties, about things that you as a Christian can know with absolute surety. There are going to be three that we're going to look at this morning, but I'd like you just to look at the passage, just kind of a cursory overview of the passage, and that sense of surety will just jump out at you, even with a cursory glance. If you'll look at verse 13, just circle these words, the word know, in verse 13, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Or in verse 15, if we know He hears us, we know that we have the request. Look at verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. And in the middle of verse 20, in order that we might know Him who is true. This whole passage exudes confidence here at the end. Certainty in the midst of uncertainty and surety. And what I would like to do is take all that information and reduce it down to three very satisfying truths to the Christian who yearns to have some certainty in his life. There are three very key certainties in this passage. The first is found in verse 13. Look at it with me. We know that we have eternal life. Verse 13. John concludes this letter by saying, These things I have written to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Gosh, it's so easy to pass by this wonderful certainty. And I love this verse perhaps because not only of its truth, but of the memories that come rushing back to me even when I read it. This is the verse that I always turn to after I've had the privilege of leading somebody to Jesus Christ. And every time I read it, I see their faces. I can see some of the faces in this audience of people I've had the privilege of leading to Jesus Christ, including some of my own children. For some, as I turn to this passage, their face is wet with tears. They have been going through life for years carrying a burden of uncertainty about life, of who they are, of where they're going, of sin, of guilt. And now in this moment of faith, there's this tremendous rush of emotion. The eyes moisten, tears stream down the face because in this moment, all of that has been removed. They found God. They've lost this sense of condemnation that haunted their soul. They've been relieved of the burden of sin. And in its place, they realize for the first time that they are truly loved by God. There have been times where, as I've read this verse, on the faces of the people I've read it to as a sense of relief. Theirs has been not a struggle so much of sin. It's been an intellectual struggle. They've wondered about God and the Bible and Jesus Christ and whether all this stuff is real. And they tried to work it through through a reasonable exercise of thought. 
And yet there continually came back this place where you could go no further. There came this place where you got to the edge and you had to jump in faith. And so they resisted for years. But now in this moment, in a, in a kind of a mysterious way that goes beyond reason, their hearts have been wedded to Jesus Christ. And they found eternal life. For others still, their faces radiated joy. In coming to Christ, there was this sheer thrill of having discovered God and that there was going to be a new life now ahead of them with new spiritual adventures and purpose. Three different emotions, but the people are all in the same place. Look at verse 13. They were in the place of belief. They were true believers, not, not passive believers. And the word believe is a very active term. And I want to keep saying that because so many people think just a passive kind of distant belief brings me to faith. No, it doesn't. It says even the demons believe, but they're not saved, James says. But this belief is an engagement with Jesus Christ where He becomes more than just a theological tradition. Something that you can hold on to while keeping a distance from at the same time. No, theirs was a belief in which they had a supernatural encounter with God. They were wedded to Him so that they could no longer be the same. And their face showed that in that moment. And so in that moment as they took Christ, I immediately found myself turning back in that moment to 1 John 5 because I wanted them to know that they had a certainty now and that I could actually show them this certainty in writing. And so with tears streaming down or a big smile on their face, I could say to them, you know, John wants to tell you something. He wants to tell you that because you believe in the Son of God, he wants you to know that you have eternal life. It's a guarantee. He's put it in writing. That's a wonderful moment. <laughs> I just get chills thinking about it. In those moments when I've had that opportunity with people. But there is something I want you to know here this morning about the little phrase, eternal life. Do you see it there? Many people are under the mistaken impression that eternal life refers to a quantity of time, namely forever, and that their belief in Jesus Christ becomes, well, simply a way to live forever. And I think that is an unfortunate misconception because it leads people, even children, to come to a place where they say, I'm going to believe in God and I'm going to go to heaven and I can forget it. You know, it's all done. It's a guarantee. Well, the Bible does talk a lot about the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. But I want you to know this concept of eternal life is not specifically addressing life after death. It instead speaks to a quality of life that you are now entering into rather than a quantity of life. And if you understand the difference, your expectation will be different when you embrace Jesus Christ. If you think it's just living forever, it's just easy then to say, well, I've done it. But if you think of it as an encounter of a relationship that you're entering into, your whole expectation of what should occur next is radically altered. I want you to look down at verse 20 for just a moment because I think it picks up on the same thing. John writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then look at the last line. This is the true God and eternal life. Now what is he saying? Let me just break it down for you again. He says the Son of God has come. He's given us enlightenment, this new mind, this new faith. He's put His Holy Spirit into us so that we might know Him who is true, that is Jesus Christ. And then he says, this knowing of Jesus Christ is eternal life. In other words, once I am supernaturally linked to God in faith, to Jesus Christ in faith, a relationship starts. A relationship that the next day needs to be expanded, deepened, worked at over a lifetime, and that this process of the relationship is known as eternal life. 
when a boy and a girl fall in love, they have a love life. When a man or a woman come to Christ, they have an eternal life. It's a relationship. John quotes Jesus as saying the same thing in his Gospel of John. You might keep your finger in 1 John and turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. You'll find no clearer definition of eternal life in all the Bible than right here in John 17 as Jesus speaks. John 17, 3. Please turn there and look at it with me. It's good for you to see these things in writing. Now most of you know in John 17, it's Jesus' high priestly prayer, and He's praying for us. And in the midst of that, He comes to this statement that He makes in verse 3, and He says, and this is eternal life. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? This is eternal life, and you'd expect Him to say, it's living forever. But He doesn't say that. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, they may know, have a relationship with Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. You want a great definition of eternal life. It's just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when does that relationship start? Well, back to our text in verse 13, it starts the moment we enter into that relationship by faith. That's why it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have, and that have there is a present tense verb, in order that you may know that you are now having eternal life. And that should give you a hunger and a desire for a deeper relationship from that point on. Not that you would put a bookend on your spiritual life as so many people do. They say, now I know I'm going to live forever and I can go back to doing what I want to do. You see the difference there? It has an unbelievable paradigm impact if you understand what I'm saying. This is an invitation into a relationship, not just an insurance policy against the future. John also reminds us that this is in writing. A guarantee. Paul would remind us that this same certainty is inside of us. It's not just in writing, but it's inside of us. He says in Romans 8.15 that the Spirit of God who's come to live within us, the moment of salvation, will bear witness with our spirit, he says, that we are children of God. You can count on it. You're in the relationship. You're in the family. In a world of uncertainty, it is so exciting to know that it is certain that if I believe in Jesus Christ, that I have an eternal life. I have a relationship with God that will abide with me forever. And all the other promises come with it, which include living forever. Do you know you have that? Are you certain? It's really important that you understand how important it is that God offers you that wonderful opportunity of a relationship with Him. It is a privilege of privileges. Well, there's a second certainty according to John, and it's found in the next four verses. It's that we know God answers prayer, but in this case, He answers prayer according to His will. Verse 14 says, And this is the confidence, the word means boldness, which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. What an incredible privilege to know that if we ask anything according to His will, we are certain, absolutely certain, to receive it. Because we have a God who we do not have to badger to get His attention but we have a God who attends to the prayers of the righteous. He's available 24 hours a day. Now I want you to look at these two verses because they give us a very crucial element of prayer. A lot of people know very little about prayer, but there's a crucial element of prayer here. It is the element that makes prayer effective and powerful and rewarding rather than lifeless and empty. It's the element which, as verse 14 says, gives us confidence or boldness. It's the element which opens the ear of God. Do you see what the element is there? It's the little phrase, according to His will. You might write this down. The will of God is the most important thing that there is in prayer. 
we're changing some concepts. We've changed a little bit the concept of eternal life. I want to talk about changing a little bit your understanding of prayer. The will of God is the most important thing in prayer. Powerful prayer, the great saints that we revere of the past and their prayers is always prayer that is seeking out the will of God. In fact, even when you're not sure about the will of God, we have a wonderful model in Jesus Christ who at the Garden of Gethsemane struggled with whether there was another way other than the crucifixion. And he wasn't sure. He was petitioning heaven, but he always ended his prayer with, not my will, but thine be done. He knew how to pray according to the will of God. Weak prayer, impotent prayer, is usually marked if you listen sometimes to your own prayers, by this almost demanding meat focus with a Santa Claus list of items of wants and demands of God, as if he's some gigantic bellhop that you ring and he comes and attends to your prayers. And sometimes we wonder, I, I haven't seen a lot of prayers answered in my life. You may be feeling that way. But you know, sometimes I think we get jarred when we come to this verse and look at that little simple phrase, according to His will. Years ago, I heard a graphic illustration of this concept of misguided prayer, and it came from the prayer that was uttered by a young woman on her wedding day. And this is the way it went. She said this. This was her prayer. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. And I guess, too, that I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since... My fiancé, Larry, still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much, and what else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. And, oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. And I've tried not to appear too religious. And I know that because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he isn't antagonistic, and I can't understand why he didn't respond. If he were only a Christian... So, dear Father, on this day, bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I do want to be his wife. So please be with us, and don't spoil my wedding day. Now, we laugh at that, but that gets pretty close to home for me. Because there have been times when, in just a moment of my prayers, I've kind of gotten outside of myself and listened to myself, and I can be brutally honest here, I pray just that way. If you took all of her religious-sounding phrases out of this prayer, here's really what it's saying. Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. If you don't like this, then all I ask is that you bite your lip and do nothing that will spoil my plans and let me enjoy myself. Prayer like this is just empty noise that goes nowhere. James says in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend the results on yourself. John is not trying to be discouraging here. John is trying to be encouraging. John is saying that prayer is a powerful asset to life when you're petitioning God according to His will. Notice in verse 15 it says, if He hears us, if we pray according to His will, He will hear us. And if He hears us, and He will if we pray according to His will, we have, that's the certainty, the request for which we've asked. Now, some of you are wondering, well, then, in my daily prayer life, how can I know I'm praying according to God's will? Well, let me answer that with a book and a question. The book, of course, is the Bible. The more you know the Bible, the more you will get a sense whether you are praying according to the will of God. It will help shape your prayers and your phrases and the directions of your prayers and what you're praying for. And that's why I love so much about kind of supernaturally in the sharing what was said, especially duties, when she said, I went for pray from praying for success that she would have a hit record to whether she would know God. That's according to His will. And you know what? He heard, didn't He, duty? And He answered. That's the point. God's Word allows us 
to shape our prayers according to His will. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that we pray for that we're not sure about. Isn't that right? And that's where the question comes in. There are issues that some of you are facing this week. Maybe it's you're praying like crazy that, that God would somehow answer your prayer and close that business deal. Man, you've got to have it. And you're asking Him to do that. Or maybe you're involved in some kind of contest and you're praying like crazy that you'll win. It might be a school contest. It might be a political contest. It might be an athletic contest. I've always watched, you know, the Super Bowl when they go to kick the field, go right to the last. And where are the players? They're all on the sidelines holding hands, praying that that ball will go through the goal. Maybe it's a job, a promotion. You're praying for that. Or a life partner. Or maybe that you're in a pit, a certain long-standing time of difficulty, and you're wanting that to be removed. And so you're praying it would be. And you're asking God, help me. Take this away. Give me this. Answer this. Let me win. Let me close the deal. In situations like that, there's a soul-searching question that might direct how you pray for those things. And even if you pray for those things. It's been the question that's helped me more than any other. And here's the question. How will God be helped by answering my prayer? It's assumed I'm going to be helped, right? <laughs> but how will God be helped by answering this prayer this way? How will it advance His purposes in the world? I promise you that has been the most helpful question in helping me about prayer. If you put that grid over your prayer, it will begin to massage your prayer and shape it, sometimes in very different ways. And sometimes you'll stop making the request altogether because you know it has no advance for the kingdom. It's just something you want. The most important thing about prayer is the will of God. Now I want you to know in verses 16 and 17, John gives us an illustration when to pray and when not to pray. And, and we're going to enter into some really arresting material here. This is an interesting illustration. Let me read it for you. Verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make a request for this or pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. That's an interesting couple of verses, isn't it? Now, before I get into the specifics of it, let me just give you the big picture of how that relates to what's just been said. What he's saying, if you see a brother or a sister, someone in the faith, sinning a sin, not leading to death, then pray for that person. Intercede for that person in their struggle against sin and ask God to give them life so that they can overcome that sin. That's what he's saying. But if you see a person sinning the sin unto death, don't pray for them. Just leave it alone. Now, that's the big picture, according to the will of God. Everybody wants to say, well, what's the sin unto death, right? That's the question that's on your mind. Well, let me give you a few interpretations. Some think of this sin unto death. And by the way, leading is not in the original text. Neither is the little article A. It's just sin unto death or sin not unto death. Some think of this sin unto death as a specific sin that is so terrible as to be unforgivable. In Catholic theology, you have mortal and venial sins. Some of you know some Catholic theology. The mortal sin being a specific sin so terrible, so unforgivable, that in its, in its act, in the carrying out of that sin, it severs the soul from God altogether. When I look at the Bible, I see no sin that can do that. None. Even murder. We have the graphic illustration of a king, David, murdering in a premeditative fashion another man, and yet he found ultimately forgiveness in God. Some think of this sin unto death as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 12, 31. Even brought to that point where they were given all those assets to know that Jesus was the Christ, they turned their back on Him, and Jesus said that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and it's unforgivable. The problem is, is that sin, and that's a real sin, that sin is for unbelievers, not believers. Our text is dealing here with a brother or a sister in Christ. 
A third interpretation is some think it refers to a sin that's committed that actually brings on a physical death, and they take the word death as being a literal physical death. And certainly the Bible does have a few sobering illustrations of people who sinned against God, and they were struck down in physical death. You might remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 when they lied to Peter about the sale of some land, and they were struck down, and they died. My problem, though, with this interpretation, and many hold it, is in the application of this passage. Because how do you know a person has committed the sin unto death until they died? And then it's too late not to pray for them, right? So that doesn't seem to be a way that this particular text can be applied. I personally believe that the terms sin unto death and the phrase sin not unto death do not refer to a specific sin at all but they are references, labels, if you will, to two general kinds of sinning which the readers of John were familiar with. They knew exactly what he was saying, and they were so familiar with it that they could detect these two different types of sin in their brothers and sisters in Christ around them. I want you to know that these two general labels of sin is found all the way through the Bible. It's found in the very opening of the Pentateuch, the law, of Moses. And I want you to turn real quickly back to Numbers, and I think you can see these two categories being developed in the law. Numbers 15. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There you go. This is really important for you to see this, because this is going to have a specific application for us. Now this is in the Old Testament law, but I want you to look at this. Look at verse 27 of Numbers 15. Because it's talking here about sacrifices for sin and what you can sacrifice for and what you can't. It says, And if a person sins unintentionally, underline that word, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering to God. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for that person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. In other words, give him life back spiritual life. Verse 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But, verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, now we're entering into another category, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. No forgiveness. You see, in the unintentional sin, the sense you get is that this person's struggling against sin. He may be losing at times because he sins. Losing due to the fact that he's weak. He's immature in the faith. That's a, some spontaneous sin that came rushing over him. It was done out of ignorance or thoughtlessness and the like. But there's another kind of sin, and you and I know it, don't we? It's the defiant sin. That premeditated, thoughtfully planned, artfully concocted action that we have nursed and pampered maybe sometimes for years, in order to carry through, even though everything we know from the Word of God declares it to be absolutely wrong. That's a different kind of sin altogether. I think John's readers knew of these two categories. I would even call the first, this sin not unto death, a sin that's against our will. Paul speaks of that in Romans 7. Verses 19 and 20. Listen to what he says. He says, For the good that I wish to do, I wish to do with my will, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. He's talking about that there are places in his life that he still hasn't got victory in concerning certain sin issues. But it's against his will. He's struggling. He's fighting against it. In other words, maybe he's weak. Uh, maybe he's, he's thoughtless. Maybe he hadn't discovered the life of Christ there. But he wants to do good. That's what I think John would call the sin not unto death. It's not willful sin. It's due to weakness. 
And John asked his readers to look around in the body of Christ there and to pray for those people who are struggling in that way and to intercede in prayer for them. He said, that's according to the will of God. And if you will ask, if you will intercede, if you will pray for them, God will hear. That's according to his will. And he will give them life in that struggle so that in time they will overcome that issue. Now, you know what that tells me? That tells me right up front how important it is that we pray for one another. Because every one of us here struggle against sin. Every one of us here have sins against our will, but they continually dominate us. And the Bible here, John is saying, if you want to escape that, you're not going to escape by fighting harder. You're going to escape via a supernatural route, and you need your brothers and sisters interceding for you, asking that God would give you life and power so that you might have victory over those things. And the scripture here says God will. This is wonderful intercessory prayer here. And I'm looking forward later on in our next year of having some times where we hold services where all we do is just ask people to come and pray for one another. We're going to do that in this next year. That's sin against the will. But notice John talks about this other kind, and here's what I would call it, the sin with the will. And we know all about that, don't we? The sin which we entertain in our minds where there is no justification at all, and yet we plan for it, and over time, if left unchecked, it becomes a defiant act of our will against God, and we go out and we will do it no matter what, no matter what it costs. It's a Judas kind of sin. That's what John would classify as the sin unto death. A course of actions that friends can't stop you, the church can't stop you, your family can't stop you, and long before they tried to stop you, God couldn't stop you in, his, in your heart. You've already defied Him. You've made up your mind. You're utterly set. There's no reason to pray. There's no reason to pray. We know people like that, don't we? Maybe you've been there. John would tell us if there is any hope, it's in the death. It's in those awful consequences to come with that defiant spirit and that awful spiritual vacuum that one will feel after he's completed his sin and feels his heart alienated from fellowship with God and from his family and from his church and from his friends. Hebrews 11.26 says it this way, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, either now or next year or before the throne of God. I believe it is within our grasp as a church to discern among this body those two kinds of sins. And thank the Lord, there's not many of the second kind. There are many of the first, and we need to pray for one another. But in the first, we pray, and God will, He promises, give life to that person. So you know from the start, it's certain that when you pray, it's going to have an effect on that struggling brother or sister. But on the other, it's just as certain there's no need to pray. Pain is what needs to occur to help them see the error of their ways. Well, that brings us to a final certainty in this passage, probably the most glorious one of all, and that is this, because it's found in verses 18 and 19. We know that we're secure in Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. Now, if you'll let me for just a moment, I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to look at verse 19 first. Because one of the greatest offenses of the Christian gospel is found in verse 19. And that is when we pronounce to the general public at large that this world is under satanic direction. That rubs hard against our world. The general public does not like that. We like to think of ourselves as getting better, as evolving to a higher state. And we have all these little technological toys around us to say that we are. 
But the reality is, is there is a constant in humanity. It was constant in primitive Israel. It's constant in sophisticated America. And that is that this world is spiritually corrupt and satanically controlled and empowered. The late and great preacher, I might add, Ray Steadman, makes a powerful observation about this. He says this, and I'm quoting, Whirlings love to hear the great and glorious declaration of the Christian gospel concerning God's love for man. Men love this. There is no offense in that aspect of the gospel. But what they do not want to hear is the additional word that apart from coming to know Jesus Christ, that they are all in the grip of and under the control of certain unseen forces. If you leave this unsaid, you will be popular. But if you tell the truth that every individual confronted, is confronted with only two choices, either he is of God or he is of the devil, when you say that, you will discover that faces will begin to grow cold and hard. There will be resistance. People will say, I was attracted to all this at first, but the more I look into it, the less I like it. I think I'll go my own way. And off they go, fondly imagining that their own way is independent, when in fact, it is the very way of the devil himself. When we come to Jesus Christ, this power that the whole world lies in, that's spiritually corrupt, this power is broken. That's why it says in verse 18, if you'll notice the first line, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now it's important that you understand that's not sinless. It's a present tense verb. It just means this literally, and they would understand this in the first century. No one who is born of God habitually goes on sinning without any break in the action, willfully going their own independent way. No one is born of God could do that. And the reason for that is because the evil and the absolute grip of Satan that twists and controls a person, however subtly, Jesus Christ breaks that. Jesus Christ sends His Holy Spirit into a person's life, and that Spirit is a powerful living seed of righteousness that enters our life and the minute it does, it changes our nature and gives us a desire for righteousness. Gives us a hunger to follow Jesus Christ. You know, I knew nothing about the Bible when I was saved, when I came to Christ. And so I had no knowledge of this truth. But one of the things that I experienced immediately after my new birth was that I wanted to know more about righteousness. I had a hunger to follow God. I didn't know where to go, but I had a hunger to follow God. And that wasn't of me, and I knew it. Something had changed in my nature that would never, ever be the same. It's not that I became sinless. It's not that I am now sinless. Because sin is a powerful enemy, as we know. But here's what it does mean. The ongoing pattern of my life changed dramatically in 1967. And over the years, the last 20 years, there has been a slow but steady growth curve in righteousness in place of that very steady, degenerating steps to unrighteousness. That's changed in me. Has it changed in you? That's what marks out that I am born of God. And that steady growth curve reminds me that I'm in Christ. I'm growing in Christ. But you know what this text tells us? That we would never do that. We would never keep growing, even after we've accepted Christ, were it not for, and look at the next line, Him who keeps Him. You see that? It's talking about Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And by the way, if God in Christ had not prayed for Simon... Peter would have been sifted just like wheat. And no matter what he had seen of Jesus Christ, he would in a short period of time have returned to follow Satan and to follow the course of this world. But Jesus said, Simon, I've prayed for you. And I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it's because of that that you're secure. Notice the phrase, he who is begotten of God keeps him. And if you'll notice... He is capitalized there because it's a reference to Jesus. It is Jesus Christ who keeps you and me secure, not our own effort. 
however strong you might be trying to follow Christ, it is not your effort that will keep you in this faith called Christianity. It is Jesus Christ who keeps you. It is Jesus Christ who keeps you from being touched by the evil one. You might underline that word touched. It really means repossessed. It's Jesus Christ who keeps you from being repossessed by the evil one. It's Jesus Christ who keeps you from returning to a habitual life of sin without regret. You can return to it, but you'll regret it because He's in you. It is only because of Jesus Christ that I can stand before you and say with absolute certainty, I will never, ever be lost. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful security? Because I know my weaknesses. But I can tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ, I will never be lost. I'm secure. I am kept by His power. And even if we go back and look at the sin unto death that we talked about earlier, I want you to know that is not an act by which God throws a defiant believer back into the enemy camp. I mean, sometimes you almost get that picture that here's this defiant believer who's sinning and God says, you know, I've had enough of him. So he takes him, he says, here, you take him. He's good for nothing. That's not what the sin unto death's all about. The sin unto death is the sin in which a father simply exercises a harsh discipline on a defiant son. But with the loving intent to bring him to his senses and back into the direction of righteousness. That's because he can never be lost. From time to time, a Christian brother or sister will visit me and they'll be in utter despair over some sin they've committed. And they will ask me in all sincerity. They will look me in the eyes many times with a jagged look, with a twisted face, and they will say, do you think I've lost my salvation? And I don't say this to them, but what I know in my heart is this. If they had lost their salvation, if it could be lost, which it can't, the last place they would be is in the office of a pastor saying that. They would be out having a good time after the course of Satan. The very fact that they're there demonstrates a godly grief that is brought to them by the living spirit who's grieved as well. And it's always a thrill to be able to turn and just read a simple passage out of John 10 that reassures them of the love of God. And I'd like you to turn there with me. John chapter 10. It's one that you might return to at some point in your life when you feel like you have been beaten up so bad that God could not possibly love you. But He does. John 10, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't that a great truth? Isn't that a wonderful thing to know even after you've been beaten up by this world, even after perhaps you've been defiant to the God who loves you, that you can turn around in absolute certainty and look at heaven and say, I am secure in Jesus Christ. I am. I'm His forever. I cannot be lost. He will never return me to damnation. He will keep me from falling and He will present me into the glorious presence of His Father as a son or as a daughter. Hallelujah. Well, let me ask everyone here just to look back at this passage because I almost want to say, do you know, do you know, do you know? Do you know you're secure in Christ? Then thank Him. Do you know the incredible power available in prayer that is offered up, if it's offered up according to His will? Then seek Him. Do you know that you have eternal life? Then praise Him. What powerful certainties these things are in a world of uncertainty. What awesome confidence you should leave here with 
because of these truths, how thankful you should be in your heart because of what John has given us as a guarantee in writing. There's only one admonition as you leave. It's the very last verse. Little children, keep your hearts from idols because idols will destroy the experience of all these realities that I've just declared to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you for these wonderful certainties in a world of uncertainty. How we thank you for the fact that you have sought us out. You have put us in your hand and no one can take us out. How we thank you that we have eternal life, the privilege of relating to the God of the universe who has stooped low on our behalf. I pray that we would be so thankful for that privilege and develop it. How we thank you that there is a stream of spiritual power available to us, that if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us, and in time we will have the request for which we've asked. Father, how I pray for my brothers and sisters according to your will, that those who are struggling with sin, Lord, that you would give them life that they could be pure and holy, that they could experience the freedom that's theirs if they would just walk obediently to you, if they could just grab on to the power you make available to them. Help them do that. Work a work in their heart that would give them life. And I'm so grateful that you heard that prayer, that you will act. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the truths that you've entrusted to us. I pray that we would hold our head a little higher because of this letter that we've just read. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.